been an interesting week. Yeah, I want to thank you guys that, that stood up this, this week and said, hey, I can help and went out and, and helped serve some of our church family and those in the community who did have a little bit of damage, cleanup that needed to be done. Um, we were pretty much spared this time, but obviously um, many around our state not. And so please be in prayer for them. Uh, We've got some information coming in the few days coming in the weeks with the church that we've connected with in Naples. Is that right? And so if you want to know how you can help and serve, we'll have that information coming soon. So um, just be on the lookout for that. I feel like we're supposed to open to Romans again, right? <laughs> a little over a year and we have finished studying the book of Romans. But let me ask you a question. What's your favorite story? Greatest story ever. Anybody want to throw out a recommendation? David and Goliath. Oh, you blew it. <laughs> David and Goliath, his favorite. Anybody else? Anybody? Any readers in the house? Samson. Samson? Esther. Esther. Man, y'all are all spiritual. <laughs> I knew someone was going to yell Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry Potter. <laughs> Cody's a reader. You got a lot of good stories in there in your mind, probably. If you Google the question, what's the greatest story ever, you'll end up with a list of some of the greatest novels of all time. You know, some of the best stories don't have pictures and cinema to go along with it. Some of the best stories ever, you know, that you'll see a list like The Great Gatsby, right, of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Invisible Man, some of these stories. And they're, they're best stories because they're told by some of the best storytellers. You know, you don't have pictures and cinema. Your mind, your imagination is... Is picturing all the details as you go. That's why real readers, when a, when a book they've read, the movie comes out, they always say what? The book was better. Yeah, the book was better because of the imagination, all the details that go into it. You can imagine what things looked like, what they smelled like, what they taste like, what they felt like. Uh, great storytellers. Well, I love the Bible. You know I love the Bible. I love all the Bible. I love... All parts of the Bible, I love the Gospels, I love Paul's letters like Romans. This whole past year, I've loved every bit of that. But I think my favorite genre in all of Scripture is Old Testament narratives. It's those stories that you first learn and hear about as you grow up in the church. Now, I'm a pastor's kid, and I grew up in Sunday school, and maybe that's why I love those stories. You know, it's the, the, the remember the first Sunday school teachers that you had if you grew up in the church? Hey, welcome back, Caleb. And... Look, man, you walk right in front of everybody. <laughs> just had to be on camera one more time. These millennials. Um, you remember that Sunday school teacher that had that little board? And you'd put that little thing and stick it to the board. What was that? Flannel? Felt? I about to say, flannel's my shirt. Felt board. And you'd... You know, you put Daniel in the middle of the lions. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Let's move on. I think it's because of those early Sunday school memories. That's why I love these stories. And, and I'm really excited because we're going to take the next four Sundays to, to talk about one of the most famous, most well-known stories, not only in the Bible, but in, in all of storytelling history, okay? And it's found in 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. I hope you brought your Bible with you. And it is, in fact, the story of David and Goliath. Now, as soon as I tell you that, how many of you immediately you had 
pictures and images rush to your head to remind you of that story. Anybody remember the story of David and Goliath? Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's a great story, and, and it's, it's very memorable. It's, it is Braxton's favorite. He likes to, to tell people he's named after David, well, you know, Braxton David, which I guess he is. He's really named after Papa, but that name probably is very spiritual because of David, right? Okay. Well, here's the deal. How many of you aren't bold enough to ask me the question, hey, Brian, I love David and Goliath, but I know this story. Why do we need four weeks to talk about it? Anybody wondering that? Because to be honest, we could probably, you know, I say David and Goliath, and if you know the story, the whole story flashes before your mind real fast, right? You're like, this will take 30 seconds and Brian will be out of here. Well, just hold your horses a little bit, okay? I'm going to talk longer than that. You see, here's the deal. Did you know or did you forget or remember that you have forgotten David and Goliath, the story in chapter 17 is 58 verses long. I mean, think about that. Think about how that relates to other Bible stories that you think through. 58 verses is a lot of verses. I mean, if you're a daily Bible reader, I don't know how many verses you normally read. I like to read a chapter or two a day, but most chapters in the Bible aren't 58 verses long. That's a long chapter in the Bible. And so if I were to tackle this in one week... It would be me really rushing through the whole story to remind you of all the details as quick as I could. Pick one illustration, pick one application that we would hopefully take away from here that you've probably heard many times before. And then we would leave and next week do something else. And I think that would just be an injustice. Instead, by breaking this story up into four acts, if you will, okay, act one like in a play is going to be today... We're going to find, I think, the story to be even richer and have more details than we remember. And we will leave knowing it better. And I'm praying that God would help us leave here every single week of these four weeks with something that will strengthen and establish our faith. Okay? I mean, that is why we come, right, on Sunday morning. If we're going to hear the preaching of God's word, it's because we want it to do something in us, the spirit to be at work in us, so that when we leave God is at work strengthening and establishing our faith. So yes, we are going to title this four-week series, Trust God for the Victory. And even though many of us already know the story and we know the ending, you're just going to have to come back each week because we're not even going to get to the action part until October 30th. <laughs> we have Fall Festival the 23rd. Has that been announced today, Hux? Yes. Don't come here on the 23rd. Go to Cottom's Farm. Come back here the 30th and we'll wrap this up. Okay, so let's get to it. The, today's title is The Enemy. Very simple, The Enemy. You can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17 and we're going to find Act 1 of our story. Uh, and, and sometimes I'll go back throughout the, uh, 1 Samuel and remind you of things that are going on. And so before we start with verse 1, let me kind of set the scene for you of the story of David and Goliath, okay? This story actually happens at a very difficult time in the history of God's people, the Israelites. The timing of 1 Samuel comes right after the end of the book of Judges, okay? We have one book in between, but it's really just a one-off story that's going on in the middle of that time. And if you remember, at the end of the book of Judges, there is all kinds of sin and evil going on in the lives of the Israelites, God's people, not just the other nations, as the Old Testament might say, but God's nation, the Israelites. In fact, the very last verse of the book of Judges says that there was no king in the land and everyone did whatever was right in his own eyes. 
There was no king in the land, and everyone did whatever was right in his own eyes. If that's not the biggest use of foreshadowing ever, you know, people have always been in need of a king. But not just any king, not just a a king that looks the part and can take care of all the, the situations and the obvious problems in front of us, but we need a what? A righteous king, amen? We need a king who can fight our battles for us, seen and unseen. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, that's October 30th. Okay. Back to the Israelites. There was no king in the land. Of course, God wanted to be their king. He had rescued them. He had chosen the people. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I mean, this was his plan. He wanted to be their king. But they kept consistently turning their back on him. When finally, in my opinion, one of the biggest acts of betrayal ever to God, these people, the ones he had rescued from slavery and wanted to be their God, their king, they demanded that they have their own king that they could choose. Because why? They wanted to be like all the other nations. Isn't it silly how often the church throughout history has wanted to be more like the world rather than more like a people set aside by God himself? In fact... In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we read, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Remember Samuel, he's kind of the the namesake of this book. He was the prophet at that time. And they said, No, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, did you notice that? One of the main reasons they wanted a king for themselves was for security. From all the other nations, the enemies, you know, around them. Which is crazy because if you've read the Bible from Genesis through Judges, you will remember that God was always delivering victory to the Israelites whenever their hearts were turned toward him. I guess they forgot about all of that. Of course, the biggest threat for the Israelites wasn't even necessarily all these other nations. It was all the other gods that they would sometimes turn their backs on the one true living God and worship the other false gods of these nations. That was when God would turn his back and then they would be delivered into the hands of their enemies. This is the first thing our story has in common with our lives today is that often we are faced with enemies, enemies that we can see, enemies that scare us, people or things or situations that force us to be fearful or anxious. Anybody Fearful or anxious about anything going on in your life right now, this morning, as you came in? Should we fear those things? Are we seeing those things properly? You know, seeing things properly is a huge theme in the book of 1 Samuel. If you're not studying anything on your own, go ahead and start with 1 Samuel this this week and over the next month, study 1 Samuel. It's fantastic. But seeing properly is a huge thing. We see it most plainly in chapter 16 when God had Samuel anoint David as the new king. The Lord said to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, you might sound familiar. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on what? The outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. We need to learn to see our enemies, those things that oppose us, as the way the Lord sees our enemies. All right, that was another sidebar. Back to the Israelites. So God granted their request and gave them a king, the first human king of Israel. His name was King Saul. Some of you know this story. It's okay if you you shout out. I will not be offended. However, King Saul was disobedient to God, so God rejected him. In fact, without Saul knowing it, without anyone really knowing it, 
God holds an anointing ceremony and has Samuel anoint the next king in line, who was King David. That's right, David, son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. In fact, the anointing happened at a city called Bethlehem, foreshadowing. In fact, with this anointment, the Bible says the Spirit of God had left Saul, and the Spirit of God rushed on to David from that day forward. Isn't that interesting? It's a reminder of what it is that helps us to gain the victory over our enemies. Not strength, not power, not our own might and wisdom, but the Spirit of the Lord. So even though Saul was still acting as king, God had already set things in motion for David to eventually replace him. Okay, finally, Brian, quit talking. Let's get to the Bible. Act 1, 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. He says, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. I want you to underline and circle the word Philistines so you'll know the first character in this story. The Philistines, this is not new. They were the greatest uh, threat to Israel during the reign of King Saul. The Philistines show up in the book of 1 Samuel back in chapter 4, and the fighting continues for many years with the Philistines, okay? In fact, when Saul died, he was still at conflict with the Philistines, Sometimes the Philistines would win, like in chapter 4. Do you remember when, when the Philistines even stole the Ark of the Covenant and took it with them? We'll get back to that in a few weeks. Sometimes, like in chapter 7, the Israelites would win when the Israelites had turned back to God and Samuel prayed for them and then God rescued them in a really neat fashion. You should go back and study chapter 7. At one point, later on, because of Jonathan's leadership, I should point out, not because of Saul's, the Israelites had the Philistines on the run. But because of Saul's foolishness, they didn't finish him off. And so the fighting continued with the Philistines. In fact, this is one of the reasons the people wanted their own king. And God himself even said of Saul in 1 Samuel 9, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. So the Philistines, here we are again, chapter 17, they have gathered their armies for battle. And this is just another reminder that Saul is not living up to his purpose as king. Failed leadership. All right, verse 1 continues. They were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. Circle and underline Judah. The Philistines are in Israel's territory. Do you see that? They're not just, you know, in some other nation hoping the Israelites would come. They have encroached all the way into Israel's territory in a place belonging to Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They just can't get rid of these guys. So the Philistine army is ready. Verse 2, Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. I want you to notice, we're going to see this a couple of times today. Saul and the men of Israel are there. Saul and the men of Israel just kind of lumped together. It's not Israel and their king, Saul. It's just Saul and, the, and Israel ready for battle. And our narrator just leads it to that. Saul is, is part of the group. He's not actively leading in any certain way. He's just there with the people of Israel. Let me ask you a quick question about leadership. Have you ever been under a leader in a place of work or on a on a team or in any aspect of life, but you were under the influence of a bad leader? Anybody got memories? Yes. Yes, yes very passionate. Yes. It's a very, it's a very helpless situation, isn't it, to be under bad leadership? I feel bad for the Israelites during the time of King Saul. 
I mean, here was their hope. Here was the plan, and there was just constant disappointment. Let me say real quick, if there is a leader in your life, in whatever quadrant of your life, please pray for your leaders, okay? Pray for godly, wise, loving leaders. Leadership is difficult. It's hard. Pray for them every day. And let me say this, too. If God has placed you in a leadership role in any quadrant of your life, pray for yourself. Don't go at it in your own strength. Pray for humility. Pray for wisdom. Pray for direction. All right, sorry. Back to the story. There's just so much to say. 1 Samuel 17, verse 3. Here we go, the setting. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Pretty neat setup. If you're a good reader, you're starting to get the feel for what this looked like. It's familiar. The Philistines and Israel about to go to battle. But then we get to verse 4 and things change this time a little bit. We see our next character is introduced. Verse 4. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. The battle with the Philistines, it appears, this time is going to be different. The Philistines are going to be represented by this terrifying champion named Goliath. Now, this is interesting because no mention of giants on their team in the chapters leading up to this. I don't know if after the last battle they had gone on a recruitment trip, you know. Maybe they offered Goliath some kind of, some kind of NIL deal. I don't know. But for whatever reason, the Philistines, all of a sudden, they've got like a number one draft pick on their team, and he's a huge, scary guy. Okay, look at this. The word champion. I want you to underline and circle the word champion. I want you to draw arrows at the word champion in your Bible. Did you know the word champion in this sentence literally means the man of the between? Write that down in the side of your Bible. Champion means the man of the between. The man of the between. It describes someone who steps out of the front line into the middle of the battle line, stands between a representative, a challenger, a champion, someone who would go before. And that's what Goliath was that day for the Philistines. He was the man between. We don't know much about the name of Goliath. This is really the only time he's even really in the Bible. But it's it's a name that matches his appearance. Why? Because it's just a really scary sounding name, right? Goliath. (laughs) It is scary. Now, we see some details about Goliath's appearance. Verse 4 says his height was six cubits in a span. Now, if you have one of those Bibles that in the back it has weights and measurements and tables, this is why it's there, okay? Six cubits in a span would be nine feet, nine inches. So, yeah. I mean, that's big. I mean, you know some big people that they're not big compared to that. Now, when we hear that, we may quickly, if we are, you know, good Bible readers, be reminded of a verse we've already read from chapter 16, when God told Samuel what? Do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature. I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. But here's a serious question for you. How do you ignore a champion named Goliath who's nine feet, nine inches? I mean... I'm trying to be spiritual, God. You told me not to look on his height, but the guy's nine feet, nine inches. And there's not a lot of those guys running around, and you can just go, oh, no big deal. You know, I'll fight this guy. No. 
In fact, some of the enemies that we face in our lives today are huge, big enemies that are very scary and real. Anyone ever dealt with cancer in their family or in their own life? Anyone ever had an untimely tragedy, an untimely death in their home? You know, these are really scary, huge things that we don't have any control over. How am I supposed to just ignore it and see, see the problem in a different way? I mean, even the little sixth grader who's got a bully who somehow has a driver's license in middle school, that kid is really big and scary to that sixth grader, you know? These are things. But here's what I want you to know. It takes practice and trust to begin to see those problems as God sees them. Can I say that again? It takes practice and trust to see our problems the way God sees them. It doesn't just happen all of a sudden. You walk with God. You learn to trust God. You practice trusting God. And then all of a sudden... You become, you become the kind of person when things come up, things that used to be really big and scary, they're not as big and scary anymore because you know the person that is going before you to fight your battle. Okay, back to Goliath. Not only was the man of the between huge and scary, he was also very prepared for battle. Let's look at this description of his armor and his weapons and his shield. Verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of that coat of armor was 5,000 shekels of bronze. <clears throat> Back to our table. That's 125 pounds of armor. Okay, so unless you were kind of hoping the guy was 9'9 with like sticks for legs and arms and just kind of awkward. No, he's huge. His armor weighed 125 pounds. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, 15 pounds of iron, just the tip of the spear that stuck you. And his shield bearer went before him. His shield was so big, probably like this huge, rectangular, full-body shield that a servant had to carry it out in front of him. And let me remind you, he's 9'9". Nine, nine. His shield's probably bigger than your average, you know, fighter. So, now, let me ask you this. Anyone thinking, this is a lot of detail? When I read the Bible, I wonder all kinds of things. And if you're thinking that, that's what I was thinking. That is a lot of detail. In fact, most biblical narrative writers, they don't give this much space to that much detail for one person. The purpose is obviously to impress you with how well protected and prepared for battle Goliath was. They had no chance. That's what he's trying to get across. You also might wonder, if you are a wonderer when you read the Bible, how did this narrator get so much detail? of Goliath and his armor and his weapons and his shield. You'll have to come back October 30th to find out how the story ends and how that kind of information would be available. You probably already know, but we're going to wait. If his name and appearance weren't scary enough for you, finally we're going to get to hear Goliath speak. And remember, he's yelling across a valley from mountaintop to mountaintop. Goliath's threat in verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? It's a silly question. They're, you're there for battle. We're here to fight, right? But he says, look, am I not a Philistine? He literally says, am I not the Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? These pronouns are very important here. Goliath says, take a look at me. I'm 9'9". Nine, nine. I am protected. I am prepared. I am ready for battle. I am representing the Philistines. And you guys, 
You're just Saul's little servants. Very derogatory term he's using it. Goliath is basically just bullying the Israelites at this point. He says, do you really want to fight? And then Goliath comes up with this proposal, okay? Here's Goliath's plan for how the battle ought to go down today. Of course, he's the champion. He's the man between these nine nine. Of course, this is his idea. But look at what he says in verse 8. And I want you to underline and circle the words, choose a man for yourselves. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall be our servants and serve us. I want you to look at that in the Bible. Choose a man for yourselves because this is great. No, no way Goliath even knew the irony of his statement, right? Because probably at that moment, maybe not outwardly because they were scared, but maybe there were some Israelites nudging each other going, uh, we kind of did choose a guy for ourselves. Hey, Saul, you know, I mean, don't you remember chapter 8? In that day, you will cry out because of your king, Saul, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And why did they like the choice of Saul, the Israelites? Chapter 10, 1 Samuel, they ran and took him from there. This is great. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Saul was tall, just not at 9'9". Nine, nine. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king, King Saul. Till they met Goliath. The people had chosen. The people had chosen. That's what Goliath said. Choose for yourself. They, we had chosen. They had chosen their own king. God gave them Saul. No one else was even like him in all the nation of Israel. He was bigger. He was stronger. And if there was going to be a guy on the team of the Israelites who was going to stand up and go fight this guy, it was him. Silence. No movement from the battle line. Saul didn't jump up and volunteer and go, oh, yeah, this is what God meant when he said I was going to rescue his people from the Philistines. This is my chance. This is my moment to shine. Nope. Another reminder of the disappointment his reign as king had been. With no answer, in fact, complete silence from, from the Israelite side, Goliath continues. Look in verse 10. The Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel, and I think it's okay to add, and their God. Because the Israelites were God's people. I defy the ranks of Israel and their God this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. See, this isn't just a battle against two armies. It's a battle against the army and an army that is God's army. This is a very spiritual thing going on here. So there you have it, Goliath's threat, his proposal, and his even mocking of God's people. And we have only one more verse in Act 1 of our story. And as a fan of God's people, which you guys should be, okay, you would hope that after Goliath has ridiculed God's people in this way, after he has mocked them in this way, finally somebody, Saul or at least someone, would stand up and say, okay, that's enough. Now you went too far. Now you did it. I'll fight the guy because he's not going to talk about God and his army like this, right? Unfortunately, Act 1 is going to end on a disappointing note. Look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel, you see how he's just grouped in there again? It's not Israel and King Saul. It's just Saul and Israel. When they heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed 
and greatly afraid. He's grouped in with the rest of them, dismayed and greatly afraid. This was Saul's chance to fulfill his purpose. It was God that said of Saul, he will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. But here is Saul and all of Israel, scared out of their mind, dismayed, broken to pieces. But it's not supposed to be that way, is it? I mean, do you remember how the book of 1 Samuel started? Do you remember Hannah? That, that, that's familiar. Hannah, Hannah was the woman who, because of her barrenness, had prayed to God and begged for a child. And God answered her prayer and gave her a son named Samuel. And because she was so grateful, she turned right around and gave Samuel back to God, dedicated him, and Samuel actually moved in and lived at the temple and was raised there. And then Hannah turned around, and in a time of praise and rejoicing and gratefulness to God, she, she sang this song, this prayer. And let me just read you one verse of her song, Hannah's song, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Who? Not, not God's people, the adversaries. Of God's people. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. But not here. Here it's the adversaries of the Lord that are not broken to pieces. It's God's own people, shattered, greatly afraid, because why? They did not have their own man of the between. I mean, at this moment, it looks like darkness has won. It looks like the enemies of the Lord and his people will undoubtedly triumph. It looks like Hannah's song, the words that she sang to the Lord, will not come true. Church family, it is sometimes easy today to walk out these doors and to lose sight of hope because of the, the amount of darkness around us, isn't it? It is sometimes, uh, it might seem that our enemies sin Death and Satan have the upper hand in what's going on around us. Some questions. Do we recognize that your enemy, Satan, is much more prepared for battle than we are sometimes? That we have no chance on our own? Are you, like the Israelites with the Philistines, are you fighting the same sin over and over and over again? Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but you never finish it off for good. Is your greatest fear death because you can't seem to find the hope that you will for sure rest in heaven for eternity? You need a man of the between. You need a man who will step out from the front line and go into the battlefield for you as your representative. And there is only one man that you can choose on your own who can guarantee victory over your enemies, and that is the man Jesus. If we choose Jesus as our man of the between, we can look at whoever or whatever we fear, including death, and we can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution, no. Famine, no. Nakedness, no. Danger, no. The sword, no. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Church family, this is the main point to take with you today. When we trust God for the victory, no enemy can stand against us. When we trust God for the victory, no enemy can stand against us. When we trust our own wisdom, when we trust our own might, when we trust our own strength, when we trust our own whatever, we oftentimes will fail and we will be destroyed. But when we trust God for the victory, no enemy will stand before us. Can we pray? Father, we are so grateful to you for the man of the between, Jesus Christ. We are so thankful that he would stand between us and our sin, between us and death, that he would stand between us and the cross and take our place on that cross as our representative, shedding his blood for our sin so that we might be made right again with you. Father, I pray that on a daily basis, you would show your strength in our weakness and that we would trust in you to provide the victory over all of our enemies. We love you, Lord. Amen.